Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 227 To Know One Religion Is to Know None. We're joined this week by comparative religion scholar and Buddhist teacher Rita Gross to explore the need for historical consciousness in understanding contemporary Buddhist practice. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today over the phone with Rita Gross. Rita, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with the Buddhist Geeks. Well, I'm happy to be uh, doing so. And it's great to talk to you because you're a geek in the true sense of the word. Your own background includes both Western scholarship and Buddhist practice and scholarship. You're a professor of comparative studies at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and you focus a lot both on comparative studies, comparative religion, Buddhism, and also gender studies. That's another area that you're really well known for. And then you also have been a longtime Buddhist. You said before the interview started that you got introduced to the Buddhist tradition in 1973, and then you started getting really involved a couple of years later. Well, well, actually, by the time I, by 1973, I was already teaching a university-level survey course on Buddhism, so we wouldn't say that I was introduced to the Buddhist tradition in 1973. What we would have to say is that something happened in 73 that made what had been purely academic for me also a personal pursuit. Mm, And what was that? It was uh, a combination of a lot of very unhappy events that caused a lot of suffering. And the turning point came one day when I was walking a beautiful Wisconsin fall day. I was walking to teach my class at the university on the four truths, trying to figure out how to present them to students and just wishing the only thing in the world I wanted at that moment was just to be able to appreciate a fall day without all the misery I was feeling. And it just clicked for me that the reason I was suffering so much was simply because I wanted things I couldn't have. And therefore, you have to give up the longing for those things because they're not going to happen. An immediate sense of spaciousness and relief and cooling. And then um, I walked on a few more steps and I said, well, if the first three truths are true, that probably means the fourth truth is true. So I think I'd better learn to meditate. Which, believe me, in northern Wisconsin in 1973 wasn't the easiest thing in the world to do. <laughs> How did you get into it? Like today? How did you find your way in then to the practices and stuff? I had a friend in graduate school, a very close friend who had already become a Shambhala student. So I wrote to him, you know, I wanted to find out if I could go out to Naropa, trade some teaching for some training in Buddhism. But that wasn't going to happen immediately. There was a, a course, Kaplo Roshi taught a introduction to meditation course in Madison, which I went down and took just to get a, a start somehow. So, I, you know, I started practicing 
just from that one weekend introduction to meditation in a Zen tradition. But then a few years after that, I got out to Naropa, and that was when I really sunk my roots into the world of Shambhala, which I was very much involved in for many, many years. And now you, I understand you teach, and one of your teachers is uh, Jetsun Kondo Rinpoche, who's a well-known Tibetan nun. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that connection and how you got kind of into that world. I started hearing about her in the early 90s, and because I'm really interested in the question of gender in Buddhism, and because I feel that the biggest gender problem in Buddhism is the lack of female teachers, I just wanted to see what she was like. So in the fall of 95, I bought a plane ticket to Denver and had a long interview with her. I had already written and published a lot of material on Buddhism and gender, including Buddhism after patriarchy, so I left her all of this stuff to read. And the next day after her talk, she called me into her office to talk to me, and she said she and her sister and her secretary or attendant had gone back to the suite after the talk, and they just happened to pick the article I had written on the teacher-student relationship in the light of all the scandals of the late 80s and what you can expect of a teacher and what you can't expect of a teacher and, you know, where you have to make your own decisions. And, you know, one of the points I make very strongly is you cannot expect a teacher to be the mother or father you never had or a perfect role model in every way. It's just not what it's about. She said, you just have to keep on doing this work you're doing because it's really important, and I will do everything I can to help your practice. So that was a very strong introduction to her and her world, but then I I continued to work in Shambhala for another good 10 years, and I also started studying intensively with her in 1998. So I think one of the mistakes people can make is picking a teacher, especially women make this mistake, picking a teacher because of gender or wanting a woman teacher or rejecting a male teacher, and that's one mistake I never made. So I didn't see myself as switching traditions for a good 10 years, but then there have been changes in Shambhala and uh, opportunities at Lotus Garden, and while I don't consider myself not a Shambhalian anymore, I don't teach very much in the Shambhala world anymore partly because of all the changes that have gone on, and I'm mainly functioning, studying with her. I haven't gone to teachings in a Shambhala setting for a number of years now, whereas I spend, oh gosh, easily a month with her every year receiving teachings. Nice, thank you. And then the main topic we wanted to get into and explore with you today is around the way that Western scholarship, and particularly the study of religion, can impact our own understanding as Buddhist practitioners on these lineages, on these traditions. Could you start off by sharing a little bit about why the study of religion has been so important for you in terms of understanding Buddhist practice and Buddhist history? I think this is more of an issue with people who study Vajrayana in the West than people who study Zen or Vipassana because Vajrayana in the West is still really dominated by Tibetans. But 
we all grew up absorbing the paradigm shift of the European Enlightenment. Uh, we just couldn't help absorbing that paradigm shift. It's a paradigm shift which prizes rationality, prizes tolerance and openness to other traditions, is suspicious of supernatural events, is suspicious of any claim that there's any unmediated verbal or conceptual truth in the world. That's the best way I can put it. Which, you know, is exactly, as I read Nagarjuna, what Nagarjuna also says. But religions get into a habit of wanting to think that their words and practices are somehow not only the ultimate, but probably the only ultimate. And it's just one of the greatest hubrises that religions get into for some reason or another. They want to attribute their own origins to something supernatural and outside of history, not the product of interdependent origination, somehow beyond all of that messiness. And that's very hard for Westerners to take in, though those of us who are scholars really see the conflict, whereas people who just practice Vajrayana Buddhism without having a real in-depth grounding in the in the philosophy, often don't see the conflict nearly as much. And they want to be good students, so whatever the teacher says, they'll go along with. Uh, and the other part of the what the modern Western study of religion has that's so valuable is a real emphasis on what some of us call the comparative mirror, that... You cannot understand any one tradition by only studying it. Our discipline was founded by a famous 19th century German and British Sanskritist who coined the slogan, to know one religion is to know none. That's as true as anything I've ever found in my life, that to know one religion is to know none. And of course... Many at the university students used to resist that insight, and in the Buddhist world they do as well. And then the other thing, this is more something I developed than a lot of other scholars did, but one of the things that's so important with the modern study of religion is that we don't evaluate another religion from the point of view of our tradition. We try to get inside the mindset or the worldview of religious practitioners of whatever tradition we're studying. So when I'm studying Hinduism, I'm not thinking about what's the Buddhist perspective on this problem. I'm trying to figure out what is the Hindu understanding of this situation. And there's such a tremendous enrichment that happens when you do that. In the world of Buddhist practice, it would be so easy if people would just really become familiar with the modern Vipassana movement and what that's all about. They could never again be comfortable using the term Hinayana the way it's used in the Tibetan tradition. You would begin to see that the sectarianism of Buddhism doesn't have to be as foregrounded as many practitioners like to foreground it. You know, we are Mahayanists, this is the highest tradition. That kind of language is very common among religious practitioners who haven't done comparative study. You know, here in this point, actually, you know, Christians have worked this out, at least more progressive Christians have worked this out, 
and I've done a lot of Buddhist Christian dialogue as well, so I've learned some from that world as well. But it's one thing when you're talking among yourselves to say how much we love our tradition, but I just taught a program at Lotus Garden in which I said what we really have to learn is how to appreciate our own tradition without needing to compare it negatively, positively or negatively, but especially negatively with other traditions. To appreciate our own tradition without having to use words like best and highest. These are the highest teachings. That's such a common phrase. Well, highest teachings to whom? This is just Hinayana. Well, just Hinayana to whom? So if you learn more about just the internal diversity of Buddhism, that's a tremendous step forward. The road into really learning how to understand the internal diversity of Buddhism is through history, is because I always tell my students there's only one Buddhist history. Buddhist history is not different for Zen Buddhists than it is for Vajrayana Buddhists. It's just that at a certain point, there was a fork in the road, and one tradition went one way and one went the other way, but they all share the same common roots. That's a real way to get into understanding Buddhist internal development and how not to be so confused by it. Because I see the classical situation for Buddhism was in India up through maybe the 7th or 8th centuries after which things started to fall apart. During that time, the pictures that most of us carry around in our heads about how Buddhism was divided into Mahayana and something else isn't even accurate. During that time period, there was tremendous contact between all the schools of Buddhism. They argued with each other. They influenced each other. When you read the literatures of the different traditions side by side, it's very easy to see how they were all living in the same worldview and all working on the same issues. When you don't do that kind of study and you just read, say, early Pali literature and then later Mahayana Sanskrit literature, they sound very different. If you know what else was going on in, say, the Pali tradition that is less studied, well, it's not that big a leap. I kind of want to go back to a little bit to what you were saying in the beginning there about in some sense, clash of worldviews. You talked about the European Enlightenment and how, and some of the values of modernity. Could you talk about what modernity was a response to and what that fundamental clash is about from your perspective? Yeah, that's a topic I'm not the best person to ask. I haven't studied European thought, except for feminist, some feminist thought. I haven't studied European thought seriously since I left college with my philosophy major because I went immediately into the comparative study of religion and learning Sanskrit and I've been much more involved in the world especially of Indian thought and then general comparative religions theory. I had to figure out why more traditional Buddhist students, in other words students who are good practitioners but they haven't studied much Buddhist history or philosophy why they were so shocked by what seems obvious to me. And then I realized, oh, it's the difference of just assuming the worldview of the European Enlightenment with, as I said, its emphasis on rationality and its deep commitment to historical study 
which means things have changed a lot. Things keep changing. I mean, there was one year when it was very strange at Lotus Garden because people were really getting restive. I was teaching that the Heart Sutra, it's not a document the camcorder could have recorded because it didn't happen that way. Not to be taken literally. And that's one of the hardest things to get over is how you work with traditional narratives when you can't take them literally or when it doesn't make any sense to take them literally because that's one of the great problems for all modern religions. Christianity's just had longer to work on it than Buddhism has. But how you how you work with traditional narratives when you can no longer take them literally how you find them, the meaning in them, which is, you know, very deep meanings encoded in those narratives. You know, I am actually very suspicious that before the European Enlightenment, people took all of their narratives as literally as many fundamentalists in our country now think they always took those narratives. I think there's a direct correlation between the growth of fundamentalism and the success of the empirical paradigm of the European Enlightenment. And that growth of fundamentalism has happened in Buddhism as well. Hmm, interesting. And, and part of what you're doing to kind of, uh, I guess, counteract or in some ways not fall prey to that same type of thinking is to bring historical consciousness into the ways that you present Dharma. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that piece. Historical consciousness values rationality, the comparative perspective, and doesn't abide by the dictates of religious or traditional authorities. Anything that a traditional authority says might be good thinking, but it also might not be good thinking, so you have to check it out. That was the initial aim. And then when I when I started to realize that there was a big gap. I mean, I was pretty shocked. Chumpa Rinpoche didn't teach this more traditional way. So I was pretty shocked when I started to learn that most Tibetans, for instance, do think that the historical Buddha gave the Heart Sutra and Rajgriha to whoever was there. You know, I mean, I've known that forever, that that isn't a historical narrative, and it has never affected you know, my willingness to study the Heart Sutra and take it very seriously as a foundation religious text. In other words, to be a foundational religious text, it doesn't matter whether or not those events happened literally at X time in history. So that's bringing the historical consciousness in to say, there's just no way, as an event the camcorder could have recorded, that things happened this way. It just didn't happen that way. And that absolutely does not affect the relevance of the teachings contained in that text for a religious practitioner. And in fact, you would be a much weaker practitioner if you have to be a fundamentalist because that's a very brittle kind of point of view that gets defensive very easily and fractures very easily in the line of any kind of serious study or questioning, that's when people start to lose their confidence in religious traditions, is when they start to see that 
No, this couldn't have been something the camcorder recorded, but what the camcorder would have recorded isn't as important as the meanings encoded in this text. That's what counts. So that's a lot of the work I did. And I finally, I think, got people to see what was going on. I held people for a whole year to study the polytexts because Tibetans don't really study the polytext. Most of them didn't make it to Tibet. And that's where we miss a lot of what the foundations of Buddhism are about. And, you know, where we come up with the notion that Hinayana is an okay term to use and Hinayana means the inferior of the cast-off vehicle. It's a term that was invented in Mahayana polemics uh, when there started to be real sectarian strife between Buddhists. But I held them for a whole year just studying polytexts and things the Buddha said as far as we can tell. Because, you know, it's always a question, somewhat up for grabs. Did the Buddha say this or was this something that someone else put in his mouth later on? The example that I used was the liturgy of mandala offering, which we do just about every day as a liturgy, as a short ritual. It depends on the traditional pre-modern cosmology of a flat earth, Mount Meru at the center of the earth, four continents stretching out from Mount Meru, and four islands in the middle, four islands in the quadrants of each of the oceans. Well, you know, modern geography has proved that Mount Meru doesn't exist in the way that the traditional cosmologies talk about it. That was used in the 19th century by Christians to try to uh, convince Buddhists that their religion wasn't true. See, there isn't even a Mount Meru. And if people don't understand the difference between imagery and empirical language, you can lose your confidence in this tradition very easily at that point. So I think it's very important to be full up honest about what history shows us and then to say, and so what difference does that make to our religious practice? I think it only strengthens a deep practice. So I told these people, look, you do this liturgy every morning, but not a one of you literally believes in the cosmology that this liturgy is based on. You know it's symbolic you know that it doesn't have to be empirically true to be meaningful. So why are you so hung up on the Heart Sutra and Rajgriha and the historical Buddha actually teaching that sutra during his lifetime? Why can't you see that there are parallel situations? And I saw lights start to go on in people's eyes at that point. And I used the example of ordinary language. Every day we say the sun rises. We know that it's not the sun rising. We know it's the earth turning. We know in so many ways how to negotiate this divide between what we know post-European enlightenment and how the traditions worked. There's so many ways in which we do know how to do it. So why can't we extend that to the other ones as well? You're starting to get into this, but part of your writing on this topic has been about pointing out that the kind of core topic of impermanence and teachings on impermanence, that there's a connection between that teaching and this historical consciousness, this ability to, mm-hmm. in a certain type of objective way, look at the unfolding of history. Could you say a little bit more about the connections there and why that's important as well? Yeah, I've actually become 
stronger on that since I wrote that article in Tricycle. I spent a lot of time last year deeply studying interdependence and uh, dependent origination, which leads into the study of emptiness. And that just makes it so clear that because things do not exist inherently, everything will always be changing. There's always resistance to impermanence. It's uncomfortable. People resist impermanence. But it's a very deep part of the Buddhist tradition to accept impermanence. What historical consciousness have the tools to study how Buddhism has changed over the centuries? Because most of the traditional ways of presenting this material have taken what is the current consensus about what's the view and projected it back and said that's what's always been taught. The study of history can show how much the Buddhist tradition has changed over the years and in what ways, but it can also show us that deep thread of continuity. The very earliest texts up to Dzogchen and Zan and Chan, what they call the highest teachings, a tremendous continuity, which is something that I it's been a bit of a surprise to me to find that if you really go into those early texts, almost everything that was later taught as advanced highest teachings is already there. It's just that it was repackaged in new language with maybe slightly different practices around it. So the study of history shows you both the, how much change has happened, but how much there is a basic golden thread that seems to run through almost all of Buddhism. Egolessness, impermanence, compassion. It's there wherever you look in Buddhism. Now, one of the things I'd like to say, emphasize before we're done with this, that I always tell students it's so fantastic about the contemporary situation is that for the first time in hundreds of years, Buddhists of all denominations or lineages or sects or whatever you want to call them are in contact with one another and can study each other's texts and are. This could take us back to the kind of golden age we had in India up through the 7th century when there were so many things going on in the Buddhist world. Instead of isolating themselves in their own lineage, people really, really studied each other's traditions, read widely, apparently read widely in, in traditions they didn't agree with and tremendously rich development of Buddhist thought as a result of that. I think we could be poised on the brink of the same kind of thing to happen again in a much bigger scale because all the forms of Buddhism can talk with each other, study with each other, live in each other's institutions, see what it's like from the other side, from some other part of the Buddhist world. I really hope that people don't waste that opportunity by wanting to stay more isolated only within their own familiar Buddhist universes. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, 
self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.